All right, well, good morning, and go ahead and make your way back to your seat. Well, welcome once again to Redeeming Grace Church. My name is Justin, I'm one of the pastors here. It's been such a rich time of worshiping with you this morning. I hope you've been encouraged so far and that you're already experiencing God's unique presence in meeting you wherever you happen to be in your spiritual journey this morning. We're going to continue that now as we open up God's word. Hannah's going to be reading our sermon texts from Mark chapter 7 and 8. So please listen to the word of the Lord. And there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up into heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephetha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, they had nothing to eat. He called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. O God of the mountaintops and the valleys, the one who's acquainted with our sorrows and weaknesses, and the one who is the giver of all good things. God, we pray that you'd help us now by your spirit to not only see Jesus, but to experience him and his presence in a, in a fresh way. And that you would do that for our good and for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, I love where we live. I love Northern Virginia, not only because it's home for me here and now and that I grew up here, but I hope to live here for a really long time. And there's lots of things I love about this area, but one thing in particular is that in a fairly short drive, even from this building, I could be in the center of Washington, D.C., or I could be out in what seems like the country. I could take a short drive to a mountain hike, or I can stand 
by the Chesapeake Bay and the Atlantic Ocean. And as much as I love the city and being close to all kinds of people and all kinds of activity, I enjoy those moments of getting away, even just for a few days, into more wide open spaces. In particular, I love looking up at the night sky and seeing planets and millions of stars without the encroaching city lights that are on display in the sky above. It's amazing thinking about all these things that are going on in the sky, millions of miles from this one place. It's so far-reaching, never-ending, mind-blowingly expansive if we just take a moment to look up. We've been in a series in the Gospel of Mark called Follow Me for a while now, and the purpose of what Mark's writing in this gospel narrative is to help us, to help us to learn and to grow in who, understanding who Jesus really is and also helping us to understand what it means to follow him in all of life. We've seen a lot already. We've learned a lot so far about Jesus. He's the king of the kingdom. He's a preacher and a teacher, a healer and a gatherer. He's also our compassionate shepherd. As we come to our text today, we see another truth about Jesus. We learn that Jesus is a giver of mercy. Grace and mercy are two words that we see in the Bible, two concepts we see in the Bible that are interrelated with one another. They go hand in hand. So if grace is getting favor that we don't deserve, mercy is about relieving our distress. But before we get into the text today, I don't want us to miss something. As we focus in on this particular part of the Gospel of Mark, we can't forget the larger story that Mark's telling here. We can't forget what lies ahead. Jesus is heading to the cross. He's heading to the cross. And at the cross will be the ultimate display of his grace, the ultimate display of his mercy. What Mark is doing in light of that, in light of where Jesus is heading, is beginning to foreshadow not only what Jesus' mercy does what it accomplishes, but who Jesus's mercy is for. And that's what I want to spend our time looking at today. See, Jesus's mercy isn't bound by borders or culture or ethnicity or gender or social status or need. Jesus's mercy isn't earned. It's freely given. It isn't restricted due to a lack of ability. No, like the stars in the sky, Jesus's mercy is far-reaching, never-ending, and mind-blowingly expansive. And it's unexpected in its depth and its breadth. And that's good news for you and me. Because whether you're already a follower of Jesus or you find yourself right now just kind of checking out who Jesus is, we all need the expansive and unexpected mercy of Jesus too. So with that, let's look at Mark chapter seven and eight. And may God bless the preaching of his word. Last week, we saw Jesus engage the religious leaders, challenging their understanding of what it means to be clean before God. And Jesus showed us that what defiles someone isn't the outward actions of our lives, but the heart of a person. It's out of the heart that Things like evil thoughts and envy and sexual immorality and pride and foolishness come from. And so what we need is not to modify our behavior. What we need is a transformation of our heart. As we come to our text today, Mark's moving on to another set of scenes, but he still has in mind what's just happened. Jesus just takes it to the next level. Look at verse 24. Mark writes, and from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. 
From the conversation with the religious leaders and with the crowd and his disciples, Jesus decides to leave not just the immediate town he finds himself in, but the whole region. He heads north to Tyre and Sidon. These are in modern-day Lebanon along the Mediterranean Sea. Tyre is mentioned a whole lot in the Bible. It's a pagan place. The people that reside in that place do not worship the one true living God. And at the same time, the people in that region were often antagonistic towards God's people, towards the Jews just south of them. So already this seems a bit unusual, a bit unsettling for a Jewish rabbi, a Jewish teacher to travel to this place. But Jesus often pushes the boundaries of the unusual and the unsettling. He goes there, it seems, to lie low for a little while, but he isn't able to remain secluded And what happens next is the first of three interactions that take place. And we're going to look at all of them, but we're going to spend a bit more time on the first because it frames this whole section. It's in this first setting that we see the expansive and unexpected mercy of Jesus is for the desperate. Look at verse 25. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Jesus had many people plead for help. Many people ask for healing, for a miracle, ask for mercy. What makes this different isn't the request that's made, but who it's coming from. Look at the beginning of verse 26. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. What's going on here? Mark wants it to make it abundantly clear who this woman is. This isn't just anyone. She's a a Gentile. That means anyone who's not Jewish. So he wants to make sure we understand that, but just to make sure we fully understand it, he says she isn't Syrophoenician because she lives in that particular place, like she's a transplant to the area, right? A lot of you weren't born and raised here. You moved here. You may say, I'm from Washington, D.C. area, but originally you're from another country, another city, another state. That's not what Mark's trying to say here. He says, no, she's Syrophoenician by birth. This is who she is at the core of her being. This is her ethnicity. The point of what Mark's trying to say here and show us here is this woman is an outsider in every way, in every way. Jesus has just talked about clean and unclean, but now he's not only entered into an unclean Gentile area, but he engages with an unclean Gentile woman. And what does she do? The rest of verse 26, and she begged him, She begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. This is not a mild request made of Jesus. She's fallen at his feet. And I think within that, there's a picture both of her reverence before Christ, but also her desperation. She falls at his feet and she begs him for mercy. Now I know some of the moms in the room, the dads in the room know what this is like. Have you ever had moments of desperation for your kid? who's hurting and you can't do anything to help them. You feel a sense of desperation, of of, of hopelessness maybe, but you know you need help. That's what's going on with this woman. This mom is desperate for help. She's desperate for mercy. And she comes before Jesus believing he can provide it for her. But why? Why does she come to Jesus? I mean, he's just arrived in town. How does she even know anything about him? He hasn't been there before. She comes to Jesus because whispers and murmurs about a king and his kingdom have made their way north. And now the supposed king is standing in her own town. And so she comes to him in hope and in faith that maybe, just maybe, he can give mercy to her and her family as well. 
So what does Jesus do? Well, even though she's a Gentile woman with a daughter, with an unclean spirit, he doesn't tell her to leave. He doesn't ignore her. But he does give what seems like a strange response. Verse 27, and he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Seems kind of harsh, doesn't it? Like, is Jesus being mean right here? Unkind in his words? Well, no. We know he's not being unkind. We know he's not being harsh or mean because we know the character and nature of Jesus. That's not his intention. He's loving. He's compassionate in his character. He's compassionate in his nature. We know that Jesus is always purposeful and always intentional in what he says and what he does. So what's going on here? Well, the first thing we have to recognize is that this is a parable of sorts. Jesus is taught in parables in different ways. And here's a a one-line parable. The bread is equivalent to his word, the message of the kingdom that he's been proclaiming and teaching. The children are reference to the people of Israel, and the dogs are reference to the Gentiles. Now, again, it might seem kind of harsh. So some scholars have said, well, the word Jesus uses here for dog might mean more like a house pet kind of dog that you take like to the groomer and like their food's more expensive sometimes than your own food. But it's not really clear that's exactly what Jesus is getting at here. What we do know is that there is no love lost between Jews and the Gentiles of Tyre and Sidon. So does Jesus have this in mind? Is this a passive-aggressive way for him to deny her request? No. Jesus' words are not an insult. They're not a refusal. They're a test of faith. See, he uses a common cultural sentiment in a provocative way to draw out this mom's faith. And in that, he's teaching his disciples who are with him. In that, he's teaching you and me. And within his response, we begin to get a hint, a hint to the expansive and unexpected mercy that Jesus is bringing not only to the Jews, but also to the world. Notice he says, first. He doesn't say, let the children only be fed but first be fed. If we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, we see that God calls Abram to himself, who becomes Abraham. He chose Abraham and his family to set apart, to be recipients of his love and grace, not based on their merit, not based on who they are, but on his sovereign grace. But this was a temporal priority. It was never meant to be to the exclusion of the Gentiles. We see that all throughout the scriptures in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Even in the moment that he calls Abraham to himself, God says to him, and through you will all the nations be blessed. In other words, even in this short parable that seems strange and potentially harsh, Jesus gives hope. Hope that the message of the gospel of the kingdom of God, the reality that you and I can be reconciled to God, once enemies, now brought into his family as children, isn't just for the Jews, but for Gentiles as well. The apostle Paul says something similar. Romans chapter one, verse 16, Paul declares, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to who? To everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek or to the Gentile. So how does she respond to this short parable? I mean, Jesus has just said, and maybe equated her to being a dog. How does, he, how does she respond to this? Well, she understands. Look at verse 28. But she answered him, yes, Lord, 
Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. I think this is remarkable what's going on here. Jesus has taught in parables many times. He's used it often to help explain and declare the truths of the kingdom of God. But most of the time, people don't quite understand. They don't quite get it. Even his own disciples have to ask for clarification. Like, Jesus, I have no idea what you're talking about. Help me out here. But in this instance, she gets it. She's one of the only people, if not the first person to understand and rightly see herself in the parable. She's saying, yes, Jesus, I get it. The Jews are the priority, but I believe there's mercy, enough mercy even for me. I'll take whatever I can get from you. Any, any bit of mercy, I'll take it. And I believe you have it. And I believe it's for me too. In her desperation, she displays a humble and persistent faith. She isn't demanding. She's pleading for Jesus to be who she believes him to be. Who do you believe Jesus to be? She's an unclean outsider, but Jesus sees her. And he sees her faith on display. And so he says to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. I mean, this is absolutely amazing, but it's also hugely significant. As one scholar put it, this is not just another healing, more a political incident. See, the expectation of the Messiah, the rescuer, the redeemer of Israel, who shows up in this place, in this region, would be retribution and recompense, not mercy. I mean, the people in this region had been harsh to God's people, had been antagonistic towards God's people. If the Messiah is here, he's going to come and wreck shop on these people, right? He's going to turn over tables. He's going to bring justice, not mercy. And so the fact that this is an unclean Gentile woman, not only approaching Jesus, not only begging from Jesus, but Jesus engaging her and giving mercy to her is surprising, even scandalous. But that's the nature of Jesus. And that's the nature of his mercy. It's expansive and it's unexpected. The expansive and unexpected mercy of Jesus is for the desperate, but it's also for the destitute. Look at verse 31. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. Now Jesus moves on from this place, but his route is a little strange. He heads north in order to head south. It'd be like leaving here to go to Richmond by way of Baltimore. Mark doesn't really tell us why that's the case, but one thing that's clear, Jesus is staying in Gentile areas. He's staying in Gentile areas. The Decapolis is an area east of the Sea of Galilee, east of the Jordan. It was a confederation of 10 cities, which is what the name Decapolis means. It means 10 cities. And Mark doesn't explicitly state it, but people are aware of Jesus' arrival in this new place. Verse 32, and they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. This man in this situation, he's destitute. I mean, think about his situation. Think about the reality of his life. He's unable to hear, unable to speak properly. But there's no American Sign Language. There's no speech therapy. 
there's no medical interventions for him. There's no government assistance. There's no nonprofit organization to come alongside of him and help him. Because of his disability, he was destined to be excluded in life and to live life as a beggar. This man is in a hopeless situation. But here, in this moment, with the help of his friends and what great friends he has to bring him to Jesus, he's begging Jesus not for money, but for mercy. Once again, a presumably Gentile man comes to this Jewish rabbi whose fame has spread to this place and asks him to relieve his distress. So what does Jesus do? Verses 33 through 35. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephetha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened and his tongue was released and he spoke plainly. Jesus has done many healings. He helped many people in the gospel of Mark, but what he does here is unique. He could have just said to the man, be healed. He could have just said to the man, hey, you can have your hearing back. You can speak normally now, clearly now, but he doesn't do that. Why? I mean, think about this for a minute. If he had just declared that with his mouth, the man couldn't have heard it. So in love and kindness, he takes him away privately. And instead of just saying these words, he uses his physical touch to show his mercy towards him. And he does so in a pretty invasive and unexpected way. Remember, the Jewish leaders cared about being outwardly clean and unclean. They would have considered Jesus defiled in this moment because he sticks his fingers in this guy's ears. And then he spits on his hand and touches this man's tongue. But instead of Jesus becoming unclean, he brings expansive and unexpected mercy to the destitute and he utterly changes the course of this man's life. The text here in the original language and it says his tongue was released, it says the chains of his tongue are broken. Everything's different for him now. And what's the response? Verse 36 and 37, and Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Like Jesus has done before, he tells this particular group of people not to go out and tell anyone, not because he's embarrassed, not because he doesn't want anybody to know or he's being secretive, but because it's not yet time for him to finish his mission and head to the cross, but these people can't help it. They're exploding in astonishment and joy and thanksgiving at what's happened to them. And in their astonishment, they declare something essential about Jesus, something that you and I can declare as well. They say he has done all things well, all things well. Oh, that we would know that and believe that for our own life. Listen, church, Jesus is never lacking He's never half-baked in his efforts. He's never deficient in his ability, never subpar in his actions. Like we see in Genesis chapter one, everything Jesus does is good and is good because he is God and he is good. And even the nations are beginning to recognize this. Do you recognize this about him? We see this on display all the more is the expansive and unexpected mercy of Jesus is given also for the masses. Look at verses one through three in chapter eight. It says, in those days, in the same place where he's with this man in those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. 
Yet if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. Have you ever had deja vu? You're like having a moment at work or at home, or you're driving in your car and you're like, I've done this before. It's a weird experience of thinking, like, I, I know what's going to happen next. I don't know. It's a weird phenomenon. Is that really what's going on here? Like, I've heard this story before, right? Am I imagining that? Is Mark just retelling the same story of something that's already happened? No, this is a different scene, different circumstances. And it, too, helps us to see the expansive and unexpected mercy of Jesus. A familiar scene develops here. A crowd has gathered like they often do around Christ. But this crowd, Jesus says, has been with him for three days. This is like a multi-day music festival, like Coachella. But the headliners aren't the leading music acts of the day. The headliner is one person, and his name is Jesus. But he's not there to entertain. He's there to do what he's been doing. He's teaching and preaching about the kingdom of God. He's inviting people to repent and to believe. The problem is there's no food trucks. There's no food vendors. Nobody's walking around selling hot dogs, right? These people have nothing to eat. Maybe they didn't expect to be there that long, but they're so intrigued with Jesus, they keep sitting and they keep listening, and now they have nothing to eat. So Jesus calls the disciples to himself, and he implies that they should feed these people. Now, why does he do this? Is he feeling guilty? I mean, they've been listening to me for three days. I should give them something. No, he says this, and he does this because of his mercy, Mercy that flows out of his compassionate heart. But once again, the disciples seem to not quite get it. Look at verse 4. His disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? These same guys, these same guys have participated and seen Jesus feed 5,000 plus people in Galilee. But in this moment, it seems like they've forgotten. Or maybe they thought that was a one-time occurrence. Or maybe, maybe, because they're in a Gentile territory, in front of a crowd that's mixed with Jews and Gentiles, they think Jesus certainly wouldn't do something like that for these people in this place. But that's exactly what Jesus intends to do, to show them and tell us something key. Look at verses 5 through 9. And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven and he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground and he took the seven loaves and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples and set before the people and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them and they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over seven baskets full and there were about 4,000 people and he sent them away. Like the first mass feeding, one purpose of this is to, again, highlight the deity of Jesus. I mean, who can do something like this? Only God can do something like this. But there's more to it than that. Like so much of what Jesus does in this part of Mark, this feeding points to something bigger than itself. It's pointing to the wedding feast of the Lamb. When we will be with God celebrating his goodness and his grace towards us in Christ, a feast, a celebration that the prophecy of Isaiah 25 verse 6 says will be open, not just to some people or certain ethnic groups of people, but for all peoples. See, the feeding is done in Gentile territory among Gentile people to show his disciples, to show the crowd, to show Mark's readers, to show us that Jesus is the bread of life, not just for the Jews, but for the masses, 
for people from every tribe and every language and every nation. There's no limit to his mercy. There's no boundary or border to his mercy. It's indeed expansive and unexpected, and it's for the desperate and the destitute and the masses. Like I said at the beginning, what Jesus does here is a foreshadowing of what's to come, that his mercy will not just be given for physical problems and needs, but for our greatest problem and need. When God created humans in his image, he created them to dwell in perfect relationship with him and with one another. In shalom, this peace, this wholeness, this harmony. But these first image bearers, Adam and Eve, rebelled against God. They decided they didn't need him, but could instead be like him, be the Lord of their own lives thinking that's where real freedom is, that's where real independence will be. But what actually happened in that moment when they rebelled against God wasn't freedom, wasn't independence, it was slavery and difficulty and darkness. And the result of that was broken relationship with God and with one another. And it's infected every aspect of creation and every person who comes into the world after that. All dysfunction, all disorder and death and decay we experience in this life, in this moment, flows from that moment. But it isn't just out there. It isn't just like, well, why did they mess up? I wouldn't have done that. No, the reality is we're just like our first parents. We're all born into this world not wanting or seeking to worship and follow God, but to worship and follow our own selves. And so the cycle continues in our world and in our lives of dysfunction and death and darkness and difficulty. Paul tells us in Romans chapter three, none of us are righteous, not one. None of us seek God on our own. All of us have turned aside from God and his good ways. There is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's utter rebellion and treason, and what it deserves is absolute justice. And there is nothing that any of us can do to remedy it, remedy it on our own. See, the reality is we are the desperate. We are the destitute. We are the masses. But what we see in this text and what we know from the rest of the gospel of Mark and the Bible is that the expansive and unexpected mercy of Jesus that we see in these stories is just the tip of the iceberg. It's just the tip of the iceberg. I love how Paul puts it in Titus chapter three, verses three through seven. He writes, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. What a miserable life. That sounds awful because it is awful. That was our existence. But, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. He rescued us. He redeemed us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, not because we were good people, not because we did more good things than bad things, not because we attended church every Sunday or gave a certain amount of money or served a certain amount of weeks or helped the homeless person on the side of the road, not because of any of those things. Why? But according to his own mercy. According to his own mercy. We are in the pit of distress, and it was God's mercy that relieves us from that distress. How? By the washing of regeneration 
and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that because of that, by being justified by his grace, we now might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Church, do you see it? Jesus went to the cross to pay for our rebellion. He died in our place to rescue us from the consequences of our own sin. Brothers and sisters, our sins, our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. It's more. It's the expansive mercy of Jesus that reaches to the dark depths of your heart and my heart and our soul, freeing us from sin's grip and its consequences. That means that there is no sin too great for the mercy of Christ to be able to relieve. There's no person too far gone from Jesus for his mercy to be able to reach. It's expansive in its nature. And it's also unexpected mercy because you and I absolutely do not deserve it. None of us just like the mom, just like the man, just like the masses. And what we are beginning to see in this story is that it is mercy that's available to all people, men, women, and children from every place and every people group with no qualification but to recognize your need of it and to place your faith like this woman, like this man, like this crowd in Jesus alone. The great hymn, Rock of Ages, declares, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Let me hide myself in thee. Let me hide myself in thee. I want to invite you. I want to implore you to come in humble faith. Come in humble faith and hide yourself in Jesus today. Whether that's for the first time in your life or the thousandth time, his expansive and unexpected mercy is for you and for me too. But as we walk out of here today and we go about our week, what exactly does that look like at 7 a.m. on a Tuesday or 10 p.m. on a Thursday or when you wake up in the middle of the night and your thoughts are racing and you're overcome or overwhelmed with all that's going on in your life or your world? Remember the definition of mercy at the beginning. Mercy is about relieving distress. The reality is we still live in a broken world so that means we still find ourselves in circumstances and situations, either self-inflicted or external, that are really hard. You and I find ourselves in places of distress. And I know for myself, and my guess is for a lot of you, in those times, whether that's a really hard season that I've been in or just those nights when you have sick kids that keep you from sleeping through the night, in those moments, I can be tempted to look for relief from my distress, to look for mercy, not in Jesus, but in other people or other things. Maybe for some of you, it's overeating or overdrinking, binge watching a TV show, endlessly scrolling, looking at pornography. Maybe it's overspending the resources you have. Maybe it's looking for it in companionship or relationship. For a lot of us, if we're honest, I think it looks like filling up our lives and our schedules so much so we don't have to think about anything else. But you know, none of those things actually provide the mercy that you and I need. Sure, maybe Jesus is in the mix somewhere in there, but he's not the first place we stop, the first person we go to. See, I need to be reminded, and I want you to be reminded again of who this Jesus is. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 through 16 say, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. He knows what life in a broken world is like. 
but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence, with confidence, not timidity, not uncertainty, but with confidence draw near to the throne of grace for what reason that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in time of need. You know what? Jesus can do this because he not only died for me as an act of mercy, but he rose again in victory so he can keep giving me mercy. He's the one sitting on the throne. He's the one who continues to give mercy. Listen, when we go to him to receive mercy and find grace and for help in time of need, he doesn't always alleviate whatever we're experiencing in the way that we might always want, but he always calms and quiets our soul. He always provides more of himself to us. We always get more of him. That's why I love the truth and call Lamentations 3. It encourages us to remember the one we see in this text in Mark, the one who is alive and is with us and for us even now. The writer of Lamentations 3 says, but this I call to mind. In other words, I have to remind myself, I have to remember, and therefore I have hope. Brothers and sisters, if there's nothing else, hear this this morning, listen to this, receive this this morning. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. It never ceases. It never stops. His mercies for you, they never come to an end. They never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, God. Great is your faithfulness. Oh, church, are you desperate? Are you feeling destitute right now? Are you tired or weary? Are you struggling with sin? Do you find yourself in distress? Let me encourage you to keep running to Jesus, to find his mercy in the big things and the little things. His supply of it will never run out for you. There's always enough for the day for you. He's not gonna say, sorry, you should have come earlier and I would have had enough then. No, it's always available to you. His mercy never runs out. In light of all of this, I just wanna leave you with two brief exhortations as we head about our week this week. May we all continue to have and to keep the posture of this mom and this man that we see in this text begging, pleading for his mercy, not because he's reluctant to give it, but because we realize how desperate we still need it. To come to him in desperate prayer. It's been helpful in my own life when I'm experiencing distress or difficulty in my own life, just the simple plea of Jesus, you're all I have. I just need help from you. And secondly, may his expansive and unexpected mercy also compel us to be merciful to those around us. Jesus said in Matthew 5, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Listen, opportunities to show mercy are often inconvenient. That was the case for Jesus. But when we recognize that we are the desperate, that we are the destitute, that we are the masses, and we recognize that we were freely given extravagant mercy to relieve an unbearable distress, we should be the most merciful people in town. People who seek to relieve distress of others like Jesus. For someone who's suffering or hurting, for someone right now maybe in our church who's isolated or alone, I think about the gathering that's happening this afternoon for those that are immunocompromised that don't have the benefit right now to come and gather with us on a Sunday morning. What does mercy look like towards those brothers and sisters? People who seek to relieve the distress, not only for that, but for people who look different, who think different, who believe different, who act different, who are different. 
Who might that be for you? Brothers and sisters, may we rejoice in and rest in the expansive and unexpected mercy of Jesus towards us and seek to go and give it for the glory of God and the good of others. Amen.